The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Storyblocks. It's the first and only subscription-based stock media company that offers unlimited downloads of member library content for a modest annual fee of just $149 per year per site, while providing its contributing artists 100% of the sales revenue for their photographs, video, or audio. To find out more, visit storyblock.com forward slash candid. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Bystander, a history of street photography, is in my estimation one of the most important books about the history of photography. Though the focus is on street photography, the images and the text are really about the evolution of photography. It's been one of the most important books on my shelf, and many others have agreed with me, often paying a premium for a book that has fallen out of print. But now, Colin Westerbeck and Joel Meyerowitz have finally released an updated version of the book, which reflects the changing world of street photography and shines a light on some of the new masters of the genre. I sat down recently with Colin to discuss the new book and what it takes to revisit such a big subject the second time around. All right, Colin, welcome back to The Candid Frame. It's a real pleasure to, to sit down and talk with you again, especially uh, about the latest book. So welcome. Thank you. Yes, I'm <clears throat> eager to talk about it myself, and it's nice to be talking to you again. It's exciting. I know it's a book that I've been anticipating for a long time, as well as a lot of other people who are really fans of street photography and the, and the, and the work that you you and Joel put together 25 years ago now? Well, it was, yeah, I can, I've lost track of the exact number of years, but it was the original book was published in 1994. Wow. So this has been a long time coming. So th- before we start talking about what the book looks like now, talk, tell people about the, the idea behind Bystander in the first place. <clears throat> yeah, the um, uh, Joel and I, uh, okay, <laughs> go back to the beginning. I was living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in the 1970s. Um, it was one of the worst decades in New York's history, but People lived in rent-controlled apartments on the Upper West Side, and it was like a little village. You sort of got to know anyone you needed to know, even if you didn't know that you needed it. I knew a painter who lived on 100th Street, and he knew Joel. And this painter said to me one day, well, you know, there's this guy, Joel Meyerowitz, he's a photographer. Maybe you ought to meet him. So we were within walking distance. So we one afternoon, we agreed to meet. When I got to his uh, apartment, I should also say that I was writing on the hist- on the movies then. I was writing a movie column for Commonweal magazine. At one point, I was president of the American Society of Film Critics, or the New York, I guess it was called, Society of Film Critics. Anyway, um, but I hadn't given photography any particular thought at that point. So I went to meet Joel one afternoon, and like many photographers who had these old rent-controlled apartments on the Upper West Side, Bruce Davidson lived a few blocks away, and uh, I think Elliot Erwitt lives up there somewhere. Photographers loved those apartments because the old apartments usually had a utility room, you know, where the servants would do laundry and stuff like that, that you could turn into a dark room. Mm. They would make a sink out of plywood and then cover it with urethane, you know, to make it watertight. (laughs) So anyway, he was in his dark room doing some printing the day I came. And he came out and met me and said, you know, I'll be another 20 minutes, maybe at most half an hour. Take a look at this while you're waiting. He dumped this book on my lap. So I said, okay. So it was some book I never heard of by some guy I never heard of. His name was Robert Frank, and the book was called The Americans. (laughs) So I sat there and looked at this book. And by the time he came out of the darkroom, I was literally jumping up and down. I said, this is a paper movie. It's one of the most incredible Mm. movies I've ever seen. So that was the beginning. 
that was the beginning. Then he and I, you know, he channeled my enthusiasm, oriented me to the field as he, as a working photographer, saw it, not in some, you know, I mean, he knew a lot of the history of photography, actually, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't trying to give me a history lesson. He was just trying to feed my enthusiasm, mostly with contemporary photographers. Yeah, I can't think of a better mentor to have with respect to that than Joel. I have described him as saying he opens his mouth and jewels just fall out. Yeah, right. He is many photographers. Photographers are very inarticulate in a way, partly because, especially street photographers, because they don't want to attract attention to themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be known as public personalities. But Joel, very garrulous, and he had had someone to bounce off of, Gary Winogrand, that he'd Mm, gotten to know. know, He'd known Gary for probably a decade at that point. Their argumentation, I think, shaped both of their understandings of what they were doing, but especially Joel. And uh, yeah, and so he was, he's very articulate. And so it was from the beginning, there was this conversation that sort of exploded in all directions. And out of that came this idea of doing this book. And the way he was not writing about photography, although he can, you know, he is a good writer when he wants to be, and he's a good interview, of course, but he really, he wasn't thinking of writing a book until he and I linked up and it occurred to him that he could orient me to the field and that he knew a lot of photographers and had looked up a lot of the history of photography. After all, the Aceh uh, exhibitions were being done by the Museum of Modern Art at that Mm -hmm. time, so forth and so on. And he was pretty prominent in the field. He knew Cartier-Bresson, he'd met him and so forth and so on. So he could get us access to a lot of people as well. So he he was the one who knew the photographers, and I was the one who, who by doing both intellectual research, but also interview research and traveling and looking at a lot of work, could organize it into a book. That was the way it worked. And the first book, like the new book, uh, depended on a conversation between him and me with yeah. which the book ends. In the For the new book, what really... One of the things that really got us interested in a new edition of it, a whole new edition of it, rather than just another, you know, the book was published in 94. It sold so well that that Little Brown brought out the paperback edition in 2001, and I wrote a new afterword for it at that point. But now we were thinking of a really much more formal redo of the whole book. Partly because Joel, traveling a lot online, you know, we realized that while there's not a lot of exhibitions and publication dealing with street photography at this point, what there is is tons of photographers staying in touch with each other online through yeah. their websites and, 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 and a few other sites like the one in London that really specialize in street photography and even do some publishing of their own. So, so what is the difference in terms of the, the perception and the embracing of street photography then as compared to now? Well, again, then the the ambition was to have a show at the Museum of Modern Art or uh, to be able to publish a monograph of your own work. That's rarer now, although there are just enormous number of photographers out there who are really talented and keeping in touch with each other. And we do show a, a, a lot of new work in the new book. That, again, was especially from Joel's point of view, was to bring it up to date. And, and uh, photographers like Matt Stewart or Nat and Devere, people like that, some of them are teaching. Some of them are still just photographing on they are, their own or occasionally get to do a small mon- you know, hard copy mm-hmm. monograph. Uh, but publishing their work online. Um, others, Matt Stewart has just been made a member of Magnum. So, you know, that's still a, that's, that's still a very viable and very demanding career, but it's only, you know, there are only a few people. In fact, in the, in the new book, I talk at one point about how Magnum, which used to be, whose whole purpose used to be to be exclusive, only people who were considered to be at that, at a certain level, were even invited to be in. Right. But the other thing they do now is that they they provide sort of seed money. They've become the opposite in some ways because they're trying to develop new photographers all over the world, especially in... uh countries that are political hotspots or, you know, are are really in some sort of crisis. 
of the sort that Magnum covers. Now they're trying, they're, they're running a kind of fellowship program that tries to develop photographers locally, partly because the online world really allows incredible amounts of new photography. Some of it really crucial as news, yeah. as well as uh, accomplished photography to get out there. I mean, one of the big changes, that's, uh, as you mentioned, that's happened over the last 25 years is the access of photographers who are producing amazing work that are outside of of America and Europe. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's people out of Asia, South America, uh, and it's just astounding that would have been completely undiscoverable even just a decade ago. Yeah. Um, how did that sort of reshape not only your assessment of street photography now, but also the, select, the choices of Im- imagery that you and Joel had to choose from? Yeah, it did affect that. Again, I let Joel take the lead in proposing imagery. And then when we came to do the plate sections of the book itself, we would, we, you know, he would propose and I would confer and so forth. And so we would set it up together. But yeah, the, the part of the inspiration, the kind of urgency we felt about doing the book is the fact that independent of us or any other official, you know, sort of documented uh, institutional history is, is just these people searching the, inter- the, the internet for each other and staying mm-hmm. in touch with each other and stimulating each other and creating a culture which is completely independent of anything that intellectuals, publishers, critics, or official media say. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting because, you know, we've talked about in the past about the fact that there may not be a market for street photography in the in the fine art world, but that nevertheless, there has been an explosion of interest. I have my thoughts in terms of why that is. But, you know, considering that you were sort of revisiting the whole idea and the history of street photography, what do you think is playing a big role in in terms of the interest of that across, you know, across the entire globe mm-hmm. and amongst generations of mm-hmm. different types of photographers. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, when I first started researching this and thinking about the history of photography and trying to educate myself back in the, I mean, this, this project really started to, to get going originally in the, in the mid-1970s, not long after Joel and I met. We were able to get uh, a National Endowment for the Humanities grant to do the research, to travel and do a lot of the research for the original book. And the broadness of the way that I was able to begin, not only by reading and and so forth or talking to people in New York, but by talking to people in Paris and London and going and meeting them and so forth and being aware of what was being done in Japan. That was when I first discovered Yasu Shimoto, for Mm. instance. I, I came to the to the first the feeling and then you know, a more informed real conclusion that street photography is so basic to what photography is to what photography made possible that no other medium did mm-hmm. that it as long as there's photography, it's going to be sort of the core of it. That whether people are getting shows and books and making a living off of it or not, it'll never go away as long as people are using cameras because it's, it's the most instinctive, uh, um, intuitive response to what a camera can do that there is. The idea that you're documenting your world, the, the, the right. world that you exist right. in every day, that that is the, the fodder right. from which you're Everyday creating. life in public, everyday life in the street is sort of our basic formulation, in a few words, of what street photography is. And then the only thing I would add is, indeed, that that is so essential to what photography is, that as long as there are photographs, street photography is going to be a core of it in some way, no matter what else is intervening and helping or discussing discouraging street photography will never go away and street photographers there are more interesting street photographers that we're aware of now than we ever were when we published the original book partly because the internet wasn't there then yeah you talked about that you actually rewrote the book that it's not just a reissue with some right. added images and some added profiles right. which is a daunting task uh, right. in, in terms of sitting down there and and because this book for people who aren't familiar with it, is a thick tome. And it's, right. it's, it's fantastic. But nevertheless, you know, you, you thought that it would be a good idea, along with your editor, to sort of make it a little more concise. So tell me about that, that process of revisiting it and, and editing it down to its current uh, page count. Well, the new book uh, is actually bigger than the original book. Okay. Partly, the new book is 
400 pages and I think a little over 300 images. Uh, so it's bigger partly because we've included more more work in it. But the but the business of of cutting it. Again, I know, you know, now I've been a curator for many years. I've been teaching the history of photography since I came out here to L.A. I've taught it at UCLA and USC both and and still continue to do so. I taught a graduate seminar at UCLA just this past spring. So my own ideas have bring more and more context to it. And the more context to it, the more I could see that that the really essential information could be clarified by cutting away things that that I had given as context originally that weren't that I felt weren't necessary. Mm. It's not that I thought the new book had stuff in it that was wrong. There were some up- updating of information and stuff like that, but it was just that I that I felt and. It, I, I didn't propose to my publishers that I cut the book by a third, but when they said they thought the book could be tightened in that way, I agreed because I felt that was that was true. But then I added this much longer essay at the beginning, and other parts of, parts of the original book have been shifted to different places. Part of the di- key discussion of Magnum has been moved up into the foreword of the mm-hmm. book. And, there, and again, there's a whole new conversation between me and Joel about what's happened yeah. since 2001. <laughs> I, I want to get to that conversation, but talk, I want to talk a little more about the editing process, because I think it's always an interesting one. As mm-hmm. a writer, rewriting has always been part and parcel of the process, but I've never revisited something that I've written uh, years ago. Yeah. And, that, and, I, and, I, and I'm really curious in terms of what you learned about what you wrote, not just the content of what you wrote, mm-hmm. but how you were expressing it. How did that evolve? Because you've been writing for your entire career, mm-hmm. but um, and you have revisited previous books, but I was wondering what, what that experience is like and what you sort of learned about how you were conveying the ideas, the history mm-hmm. in this book as compared to the previous time. Well, it's part of it is that with the, you know, when you're, especially someone, an author who has suddenly got an unprecedented opportunity to enter a field he hasn't known before. You want to connect as many dots as you possibly can. And then when you go back, say a quarter of a century later, and look at what you've written, you see what really the essential information was. Hmm. You know, the it's not that I... that. I've ever felt that I was being just a verbose writer, you know, just saying whatever came into my head. But I wanted to include all the information I thought might be relevant because I didn't understand, you know, I was writing my way into understanding where the main lines were. So there was a lot of context for that. Uh, I was finding where the river ran, but I was including a lot of what was on the banks, (laughs) put it that way. When they proposed a third, I agreed to that immediately because I felt that the uh, argument could be, and you know, I don't want to use a word like streamlined. It could be um, uh, enriched. It could be made denser by being made lesser. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, the the there's one chapter. That you may recall that the book has four key chapters, each one of which anchors a kind of political or a, a, a historical period. Yeah. Atchee in the 19th century, Cartier-Bresson, Europe in the 20th century, Walker Evans, America before the war, Robert Frank, America since the war. The Robert Frank chapter was 9,000 words. I cut it by two-thirds. It's now 3,000 words. Wow. Despite the fact that it was one of the few places where I added a whole new chunk to the uh, discussion where I wrote an ex- a, a new maybe 800 to 1,000 words. I wrote those, those words probably in the course of one, maybe two afternoons. Mm-hmm. It was something that didn't take me very long to write, but took me 25 years to see it. <laughs> How did exposure to the work that has been more recently produced sort of evolve your perceptions and your analysis of street photography the again there's the plenitude out there but there's also a point in the um in the book where i give my attention in a very critical way 
to a, a piece about street photography that was done, I think, by Der Spiegel, if I'm remembering correctly, published by Der Spiegel a few years ago, uh, in which um, Bruce Glidden and, and uh, Elliot Erwitt were given Google Glasses. Remember when Google, yeah. Google mm-hmm. Glasses was going to be this big deal, and then it kind of fizzled. It turned out it didn't work as well as Google thought it should. Or Anyway, so they were given Google Glass, and the difference between... Erwitt and his incredibly laid back, you know, the the the, the um, aesthetic of invisibility on mm-hmm. the street, and and Glidden Gilden rather, uh, who um, is very aggressive on the street. He really kind of attacks his subjects and tries to dismay them, you know, to be aggressive enough to knock them a bit off balance, and then he takes a picture of them. And that idea of street photography is one that I think is uh, wrong-headed. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, that was something, where, that was an instance where I really wanted to attack a, a current tendency. It's interesting, too, because, you know, I wrote all this when Obama was president. Now we have a society that really is aggressive in that terrible way. Yeah. Um, and so in some ways, I'm gladder than ever that I really came down hard on that idea of street photography. Mm. What, what, what do you dislike about it so much? The aggressiveness. To- you know, he, he, there, there, in this, in the Der Spiegel article, there was a point at which he and Erwitt were walking around the streets of New York uh, with this Google Glass. And there was a point at which uh, he went up to a, a woman who had noticed him. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, according to the article, and he didn't deny it, he sort of grabbed her by the scruff of the neck and stuck a camera in her face and took a picture. Uh, or maybe took it with Google Glass. But no, I think he, because he, he was carrying, they were both carrying their cameras in, in addition to wearing Google Glass itself. And, uh, you know, I thought that was just outrageous. And the the crazy thing about it was that the woman was sort of responsive. She, you know, uh, it, it was uh, kind of the proof of postmodernism. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to live in a kind of magazine story, not in real life anymore. And so she was, she felt flattered by the attention. And I thought the whole thing was just pathetic. Mm. You know, it's interesting, this this whole idea of, like, permission and and invasion of personal space. It's always been a, a part and parcel of street photography. Mm-hmm. Um, but now with, there's an awareness of the camera, whether it's a camera phone or whether it's a mirrorless camera or whatever, by the general public that wasn't present, I think, uh, even just a couple of decades ago. Mm-hmm. You, someone would be out there shooting and most people would disregard it, even if the camera came in very close mm-hmm. proximity mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. Now there's such a hyper awareness of the image mm-hmm. and the fact that it's it's going somewhere. Mm-hmm. And they have a, a general idea that it could show up on Instagram, on Facebook, not so much a, a wall in a fine art museum or anything like that. I can tell you in one word why that's the case okay. now. The selfie. Yeah. People are so self-conscious about being you know, a kind of public figure to themselves with their selfies, Mm -hmm. that the invasiveness of photography in other ways, you know, is is like this woman who got, you know, sort of manhandled uh, in in this situation uh, and yet was flattered by it because her her picture had been taken by somebody who publishes pictures in magazines, Mm. uh, despite the fact that, that, uh, you know, he's lucky he didn't have uh, someone who was a really committed feminist. (laughs) that he tried that on. (laughs) So how is this changing the perception of street photography for good or ill? Well, again, instances like this, I think, change it for ill. It's not that they're, you know, certainly Gary Winogrand could be a very aggressive street Mm -hmm. photographer at a time, but even Winogrand, in fact, all street photographers, or Arbus, who was seductive in a way, most of her subjects uh, knew that they were being photographed. But there is now a kind of uh, tolerance for the idea that everyday life on the street is itself in some way a kind of drama, a, a kind of, uh, of observable uh, art almost. And photographers who record that for us, you know, uh, uh, do so in this new environment, but with the same sort of skills that photographers had since, you know, the Leica was invented. Mm-hmm. I mean the, the ubiquity of the of the cell phone 
for example, mm-hmm. has made a huge difference, right. as you just said, with peoples and selfies. Right. But it's also served as an introduction for many people to the street photography. And I've heard mm-hmm. countless amount of times that people have been shooting out on the street and only later discover that, oh, there's this thing called street photography. Mm-hmm. And then they get introduced to this world, they network. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. But I think that that was probably along the lines of what was happening before, but it was with people who could afford to mm-hmm. buy a camera mm-hmm. and they would instinctively go out into the street and then somehow they might find out about well there's this legacy of this what was once known as candid photography that eventually mm-hmm. got you know got you know categorized as street photography so. well it was also people um uh in the past uh who had some cultural awareness of art mm-hmm. uh and a sense that 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 photographs got into museums but the situation on the street now is is very different so you know people live so much through their photographs through instagram and so forth and so on it's the immediacy of the way that you know an image can go viral as right. they say that gives photography a whole new valence in life whether whether the person taking the picture is someone who gives a damn about art or even knows anything about photography as an art form or not There are only so many hours in the day, and you can really feel it when you're on deadline. I have faced that so many times when I'm working on producing a video or a report or editing an audio piece. Much of that time is spent just searching for the right B-roll or audio file or picture to help complete the project. I can't even count the amount of hours I've wasted just trying to find that right piece of content. Storyblocks provides the perfect solution for that problem. Not only is it affordable, it also provides income for the content creators themselves, whether they are a photographer, videographer, or illustrator. That's because Storyblocks provides you access to high-resolution photo, vector, or audio, and they are all royalty-free. And for creators who contribute their work, it's also great because they enjoy 100% of the sales commission. To find out more, go to storyblocks.com forward slash candid to get all the stock images, video, and audio you can imagine for just $149. That's S-T-O-R-Y-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash candid to download anything from thousands of images, video, and tracks, and unlock discounts for millions more. So tell me about this, you know, you're sitting down with Joel again, mm-hmm. and, and I know you guys have been friends and have talked, mm-hmm. but there's a, there was a singular focus this time. And what what was that like, and what insights did you pull away from it? Because you're, you've always been observing, studying, teaching street photography, mm-hmm. but, you know, sitting down and having this sort of moment to sort of focus on it, what insights did you gain from those conversations? Well, it, the the, you know, it's as I say, over 20 years later for both of us. And in the original conversation, the the conversation as it was originally done was, was, and this is still very much the case in some ways, was me posing questions to Joel to to prompt him to get mm-hmm. the conversation going and so forth, and really being that being the venue for letting him talk. I mean, I had already been allowed to talk. I'd written, <laughs> you know, I'd written the, the the historical chapters and so forth. But the difference this time was interesting. You know, now I've spent twenty five years with this medium too, mm-hmm. and done a lot of you know curating, publishing, and so forth. This has become my whole career, whereas it was much more tentative when we first started out on this. So in those days, I deferred to him in a way that was good because he knew so much more than I did, and his opinions were much more anchored. They were more personal, but at the Mm -hmm. same time more anchored, whereas I was trying to be objective about it but knew that I didn't know everything or anything close to what he knew and had experienced. This time, the, the dialogue was more of a dialectic there were times when we disagreed about you know what, you know and I stood up for my you know I like this particular photographer or this particular aesthetic over that one and he and I went back and forth and um, you know it, it wasn't it didn't in some way threaten our friendship mm-hmm. or our collaboration I think it enriched it 
but again, the, the conversation is mostly ones in which he's being given the space to elaborate, whether we're disagreeing or agreeing. And sometimes when I said, gee, you know, I think this picture really has something that that one doesn't that you prefer. And we, yeah. he and I would, you know, argue it out in the sense of argumentation, not, not, you know, irresolvable disagreement. So I think that enriched it. I was more of a stimulant, a stimulant perhaps because uh, because I said things that he didn't agree with at mm-hmm. times and it was it wasn't you know that we disagreed on the whole big picture in some way but that on particulars you know who whose work was interesting something like that whose was more interesting than someone else's or which was the picture that really reflected this photographer or that photographer I can um, but I can't help but feel that that it had made the experience richer and the content richer as a result. Because, I think so. I hope so. Yeah, because anyway. I, I can think of that, that that it was sort of an unequal playing field in yeah, terms right. of his experience and his knowledge of it as compared to you coming in. Right. And you described earlier how that sort of influenced the the content of the book. But here, because you had your own experiences, your own opinions, now that those disagreements really provided uh, an opportunity to really discover something that wouldn't have been discovered as a result of someone else just saying, this is the way it right. is, and this right. is the way I see right. it. You know, another example uh, of the, the uh, incredible richness, diversity, and availability of street photography now, despite the fact, as I say, that it's not being published and exhibited at the Museum of Modern Art in the way that it once was, although, you know, Stephen Shore, who is... A photographer of many parts, but part of it is, of course, a kind of street photography. He has this huge retrospective mm-hmm. up right now at MoMA. But what I was going to speak to was um, a different kind of institution, the, the Los Angeles Center of Photography, which does a street photography sort of competition every year. And incredible work is done, much of it by people who have completely established careers. I think a couple of years ago, or maybe it was last year, the the person who won it was a terrific street photographer. It was a guy who's a doctor or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So it, again, I, the Los Angeles Center of Photography is. I'm going to do some lectures there uh, next year for, uh, the, in the coming year for them, and they're a terrific organization. And the success of something like that, I think, when Joel and I started out, if we'd said, "Well, street photography is an institution that deserves a, a kind of." Uh, something just completely of its own mm-hmm. people would have said what are you talking about what is it that, that that doesn't mean anything but now it happens spontaneously do you think that the way that the the fine art world um museums and all that look at it is is part partly influenced by the fact that they see everybody doing something along the lines of what people sort of put under the umbrella of street photography mm-hmm. or is it just the fact that they don't know how to commoditize it well, it, it, again, it's that the, the, the sense of how photography becomes art uh, was fundamentally challenged and in some ways changed by postmodernism. But again, the, the interest in street photography, whether museums respond as readily or as often to street photography uh, as they did say, 25 years ago in the, at the height of the Zharkovsky era, let's say, at the Museum of Modern Art. Whether they do or not, the street photography is, in a sense, stronger than ever now because with, even where that support's not there, the field is just expanding and mm-hmm. getting richer and richer from photographers feeding off of each other. That's all they need. Yeah. They don't really need us to go and look at the stuff in museums for them to be enthusiastic and to become sophisticated by their interaction with each other. And the fact that the Internet has made that more possible is while photography is in some ways degraded by selfies and, you know, this constant blasting away that everybody does now, uh, the mass culture is in some ways more vulgar, but the self-defined culture of photographers themselves is richer. Yeah. I think one of the things, one of my complaints about, uh, as much as I love the accessibility of different photographers on the internet, mm-hmm. one of the things that I do lament is the 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 
sort of navel-gazing that happens because people are simply riffing off of what other people are doing to the point that, you know, it's not original. And I think we talked about it last time we sat down, this whole idea of wanting to find something that excites us, something, a photographer that does something that we've not seen before, Mm -hmm. or not necessarily not seen it before, but takes a take on it Mm -hmm. that is surprising and exciting. Mm -hmm. So do you have some examples of some of the photographers that you included in this book that provided you I, to be honest, without uh, um, having sat down again with the book and decided who I was going to talk about, you know, I, the, I'm I'm a little reluctant to do that because there's a lot of great work out there. One thing is that we, as we saw, even in 2001, uh, there uh, there weren't enough women in the book in the original mm-hmm. book. And there are more and more. There's a woman now named uh, Kate Kirkwood whose work is is very essential to what we show, and we give her a number of pictures. And she's not the only one in the new book. So in that way, some of the um, machismo problems with the original book, with street photography also, I mean, Gary Winogrand was still incredibly influential in his uh, take on how to make photographs. His favorite word, I think, was tough. You know, the pictures have to be tough. Joel also talked that way. Mm-hmm. But there is, again, it's not that there's a sort of more passive or receptive feminine side to it, but that women who make street photographs uh, have, have a different a very different perspective on what public life is like as we're yeah. now going through this incredible period of you know of of calling out uh, uh, men who've been aggressive toward women uh, in, in some way. So when women make street photographs, there is a difference there, and the difference is represented in the new book by Kate and, and Kate Kirkwood and, and other photographers as well. Uh, and that's a shift of emphasis from when we did the original book. But even in 2001, we realized that that was something that had to be rectified, and it's more rectified in, in the new book. But and again, you know, people like Matt Stewart, who was a guy who was shooting street photographs because he loved it and trying to support himself by, by doing other kinds of work, right. is now a member of Magnum. Uh, again, shows that that system works. But at the same time, Magnum is acculturating uh, street photography all over the world by this fellowship program that they've now started. So the the way again the 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 amount of work that's out there uh, is in some ways and was for us intimidating. That is to say, you sift through a lot of stuff because you realize that there are all kinds of different points of view, far more than there were when street photography was a more refined group of a few people who were passionately interested in it, and mostly in touch with each other. Yeah. Now people are looking at lots of stuff, but but the field is much much bigger and more diverse than it was before but for instance one of the places where joel and i you know had had an argument in the sense of argumentation not of dis, you know not of irreconcilable disagreement was that there are one or two architectural photographers i was interested in including in the book and he said you know it's a, this guy's shooting architecture what's it? you know it's not street photography and i said yes but he photographs buildings especially i'm thinking of Ewan bond uh, he especially uh, now when so many buildings are incredibly transparent that you can look through several right. floors mm-hmm. at once. You know, in photographing architecture now, which used to be a kind of monumental subject matter, now it's a much more humanized one. And in Ewan Bond's photographs, where people appear and you know how he. In- uh, chooses to include people in these buildings that are glass from floor to ceiling and floor to floor within uh, makes for interesting street photography. So there, you know, I think there's one picture or something, and and we we uh, tussle a bit in the dialogue about this subject, you know, about whether someone with a completely different purpose is is making interesting street photographers street uh, photography. And of course, it's always been true that they do. But this was a point I pushed, and you know, and he pushed back. But you know, it, it, again, it was it was part of the companionship that goes into the book, uh, not a not a you know not a kind of riff between us that was irreconcilable. I mean, but that's an interesting point because I I hear and I've, I've had dialogues with people about what isn't isn't street photography, and to some mm-hmm. extent, mm-hmm. I think there's a rigidity more so now than there may have been in the past. Because I, to my sensibility, it seems like it was much more open in terms of what it could be or what it wasn't. 
now there are a lot of people who just or who just step out and just say that's not street photography yeah, for whatever yeah. reasons yeah, this yeah. is yeah. so do you, what's your perception in terms of what is and what it isn't you make a great example here with the uh, with the photographer that you champion for the book but th- how do you see people's particularly photographers' perceptions of what is or isn't street photography? Well, I'm especially interested, and here's a place where Joel and I completely agreed. I'm especially interested in people who make street photography with a kind of awareness that the whole world is full of images now in a way that it wasn't even 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. An example of a photographer we pay some special attention to and is brought into our conversation is Nat and Devere uh, in New York. Uh, and the pictures that he made that really uh, struck a chord with me were, you know, it used to be, uh, and I talk about this in the in the in the book, it used to be that the intrusion of advertising and and of and of celebrity culture and so forth was on a billboard someplace up on the top of a building that you could see maybe a block away or out on the highway or whatever but when you walk down the street it was just people in facades now those facades have these see-through you know these huge advertising pictures two stories high sometimes three stories high on them where you know because there's a kind of technology now that allows you to do that and people inside the building can look out but you don't look in what you see is this enormous woman in a dress or or a guy standing by his car or something Mm -hmm. like that this kind of advertising at street level and devere i think has a, a a genuine cultural insight not just a photographic tactic uh when he photographs real human beings in their casual diminished state walking by walking down a sidewalk in new york and plays them off of these enormous two-story images of people that are you know that have these completely ulterior motives uh in the way that in the way that they're presented to us so i again i think that's someone who has found a way to distill the invasiveness of commercial imagery Mm-hmm. In in contemporary culture, far more than it was even twenty years ago. Partly because technologies uh, make it possible now, but also because the fact that postmodernism isn't just an aesthetic theory; it's an observation of something that's true mm-hmm. about the way in which people's imaginations are now image generated by people with calculations about how to manipulate the public. Yeah, yeah. and so Devere finds a way to make an image out of that, an image about that rather than just subject to it or or browbeat by it yeah because i can i've heard people complain about people who compose photographs with other people's quote-unquote artwork mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in the compositions mm-hmm. and i think that he's a great photographer that demonstrates that but i i just saw a retrospective of uh, walker evans work mm-hmm. in paris mm-hmm. and uh there was a series that he did on uh, uh, you know billboards that oh, existed. Yeah. and it was just fascinating to see that within the context of history mm-hmm. how much valuable those pictures are where now, because of their immediacy, we can sometimes feel like it's problematic in terms of a composition, but that that the the luxury of time right. uh, can take t- allow you a photographer to take those elements and make them into something more than just the momentary distraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, again, it, it's it used to be that uh, um, you know billboards were something separate and apart from that kind of public advertising uh, was something pub- that was apart from the everyday life you lived, walking down the sidewalks and so forth and so on. And and the the situation now is is uh, that it's much more invasive and in some ways therefore much more sinister and controlling. But it's partly because postmodernism is indeed a cultural situation. Yeah. Uh, and now, as you mentioned before, you, you teach a lot about street photography and do a lot of presentations on it. After working uh, so hard on this book, what is something that you're excited to teach and share with students? the next time you have an opportunity to do as a result of working on this? Well, I hadn't taught in a while. As, as 
you may know, um, I was teaching in the mid-aughts and up until about through uh, 2008, I think was the last time I'd taught before this last spring. And the, part of the reason for that was that for three years, I went out to Riverside, to the University of California, Riverside, and ran their museum, the California Museum of Photography. And that was a full-time job. And so I kind of moved away from some of the things I was doing, including the teaching I had been doing here, here in L.A., but the, one of the reasons that I felt I had something to offer, especially to graduate students, this was graduate students uh, in photography, but also other media at UCLA. And the UCLA uh, program in the School of the Arts at UCLA is one of the best in the country, especially for photography. Jim Welling had run it for many years. Jim has now moved to Princeton, uh, but the program, as established there uh, by him, is is a really good one. Matthew Brand was one of his. When I last taught seminar, it was uh, in the graduate program at UCLA in 2008. One of my students was Matthew Brandt, who you know came out of graduate school and is now a very established photographer with a very unique. Um, well, you can't say very unique. Unique means unique, but anyway, mm-hmm. a unique idea. But in fact, I feel I felt especially that among the the caliber of graduate students that they get at UCLA, they just sort of take it for granted that um, if you uh, get a, a degree and you have a truly original mind, you'll make a living as an art photographer. And of course, I, that's truer now than it has been in the past. But I, I felt that a course in the history of photography, which was oriented toward what the prof- actual professions of the people who are now part of the history of photography uh, were, would be useful mm, that yeah. that this is sort of news to this generation that that uh, that feels that uh, they can get into the museum world they can get into the galleries if they have a certain kind of take on photography in general and street photography even in particular so the the basis of the course was what I did was to go back to the beginning of the history of photography and talk about how photographers worked for certain kinds of institutions uh, that found photography useful rather than for photography as an art form to exhibit in a museum, and that a great deal of the history of photography now shown in museums was made for other purposes. Uh, For instance, Mission Héliographique was a public institution in France that was inspired by the uh, movement to save medieval architecture and to celebrate it. And that idea of of, uh, of uh, cultural heritage of France came along just after photography was invented, and photographers were hired to document the medieval architecture, not because the documents were going to be shown in museums, but to make an archive. And indeed, much of the 19th and early 20th century, right up through the Farm Security Administration, the point was not to make mu- uh, 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 photographs that were going to be published in the paper the next day or were going to be uh, shown in a museum within a year. Uh, it was to make photographs that were going to be buried in an archive as a kind of cultural resource for historians and other people from other fields. So it was a profession, you know, and, and Magnum, too. The point was, yes, to have a chance to make great photographs, and the way to underwrite that was to uh, be able to show the news to people in a way it hadn't been seen before. But it was news. You know, you were a reporter. Yeah. So for people who pick up this book, what is, what, what is your hope that, sort of your takeaway that you're hoping people get from picking up this latest version of Bicentric? Well, One of my hopes, I think, is that because uh, I feel that the very fact that this book has had such a long lifespan and has now undergone a reincarnation uh, is proves that what I sort of felt from the beginning, which is that this genre is essential to photography, no matter what the commercial or or institutional relationship to photography may be, that it's that it is so essential to photography that it's always going to be important. And in some ways, it's always going to be that secret who sits in the middle and knows, you mm-hmm. know, the little the Robert Frost poem, we dance around in a ring and suppose, but the secret sits in the middle and knows. <laughs> but street photography is the secret that sits in the middle of the whole world of photography and knows. So I feel sort of vindicated in, 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 you know, in that feeling I had uh, about photography. 
and and I think that in a world in which the number of images and the way we consume images has so exploded that being able to channel some of that through a book or mm-hmm. through an interview like the one we're having right now is a useful, and I'm not even going to say cultural, just historical. You know, it's still, uh, I feel, a, a clarifying certain things about the history of photography in a time when the image glut, an unprecedented, a completely new density of the kind of image glut in the world, it shows that you can still sort it out and understand what the drivers are of it and where the most originality actually exists. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend one photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So uh, that one photographer being why? Well, yeah, I, I'm going to pick out Matt Stewart to recommend for that, partly because of the fact that I'm very interested in seeing his career now. He's been a freelance photographer for a long time. Yeah. He's got a family and a wife to support and, you know, and so forth and so on. But the fact that Matt has now uh, become a member of Magnum, and I, and because I keep in touch with him, I know, you know, where he's being sent from one side of the world to the other every other week or every other few days uh, to cover different things. So I think that he is as gifted as any contemporary street photographer, and he's been working at it for quite a few years now. And now that you know, Magnum and street photography. You know, Cartier-Bresson's place was never the place that Kappa had. I mean, Kappa died because he went where the hotspots were and and where you got shot at with guns, not just other cameras. Uh, Cartier-Bresson wrote essays on on the world. Um, he was sometimes he he photographed Gandhi shortly before. I mean, like in the same day that I think mm-hmm. Gandhi was assassinated. But he wasn't basically a hot news photographer. But the place now, the, the, so much of the world is full of hot news now that anybody in Magnum is is got to go where the news is because Life Magazine is gone. The idea that mm-hmm. pictures are part of a kind of general acculturation is in some ways more diminished now, partly because it's everywhere but there's still photographers who sort it out and who can make a living at it or serve a purpose other than just the the aesthetics his own sense of the aesthetics of photography and still be a great photographer and and you know and merge the two worlds of commerce photography is commerce and photography is art so i would say matt's career is as interesting and informative as anyone's to look at because he's a great photographer who's now in a situation that he wasn't in you know when the pictures we included in the book most of them were made yeah well colin thanks again it's always a pleasure and an honor to have a chance to speak with you and and congratulations on the book no thank you very much i it's always a pleasure to talk to you because you're so informed on this subject and you're really willing to talk about it some length. Thanks to Colin for his time and for all the work he's put into this great book. And remember, if you purchase the book, please use our Amazon affiliate link. We receive a small percentage of your sales, which helps us to produce the show. And thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. Next week, we'll be at 400 episodes, and I would really love to see a host of five-star reviews to help promote the show before then. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations we offer here at TCF. Thanks to the Ginger Surfer from New Zealand for his recent five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the frame, or you'll find the link in the show notes and the Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on a donate button on the Candid Frame website or the show notes. Thanks to John Mather for his recent donation. I really appreciate the support. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for both Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but you can now easily share your favorite episodes on your social networks and help spread the word. 
And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at ebodynx. And this is ebodynx, and this is The Candid Frame.